You may be seated. And when you are seated and comfortable, please open your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 3 today. We are going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. What we're going to do is follow our normal pattern. We're going to begin where uh, the last passage we left off. So today we're going to read Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and we'll end at verse 20. Paul, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but uh, Paul has been uh, arguing for quite some time since uh, chapter 1 that um, all are in need of the gospel, that we all stand guilty before the Lord, and he's gone through uh, different angles um, and, and addressing uh, various aspects. And here it's kind of the conclusion, the culmination of his argument before he uh, switches over a bit and starts to give um, the answer to this problem, this problem of uh, sin and judgment. So with that introduction, let's begin reading Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And I would remind you, this is God's holy and inspired word. Chapter one, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray.
Lord, we are thankful for your word. You know that our culture does not say this about man. It preaches another gospel. Lord, we do ask that you would help us today as we reflect on your word. Lord, as we reflect on your word, we see our need, our need for Christ, our need for the gospel. Lord, we pray that you'd make that abundantly clear today. We pray that you would help us to see Christ and to see him as the treasure he is, that pearl of great price. Lord, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I've got a question for you. It's a hard one. Who likes the zoo? I, I, I thought I was going to be uh, bored at the zoo, to be quite honest, right? It's like something that's supposed to be for little ones. But I've got to tell you something. I love the zoo. I'm, I'm a big fan of the monkeys. They're a little crazy, but I like the monkeys. And there is something... Um, Something powerful about hearing the roar of a lion in front of you. It's like something, you have to have a good sound system at home, I guess. Um, I don't. Um, But to hear that, uh, to see these magnificent animals, um, it's something else. But some of the exhibits are a little creepy at at the zoo as well. Zookeepers are brave people who handle some of the most uh, dangerous creatures on earth. Uh, Of course, they work with snakes and spiders and scorpions and lots of other uh, venomous animals uh, that can be deadly if they are mishandled. Even a single bite or sting can cause serious harm if it's not treated right away. That's why uh, zookeepers have to be uh, extremely careful when they are handling some of these creatures. One false move, and they can be bitten or stung. But there, there is good news. E- even if they're bitten or stung, there's a way to save them. It's called uh, anti-venom, right? We might think of a- an antidote uh, to this poison. It's a special treatment that can neutralize the effects of venom and prevent serious harm or even death. Being a sinner is like being filled with deadly venom, and we need an anti-venom. We need an antidote. The Bible says that sin results in death, and our passage is about the universality and severity of human sin. You can see that clearly if you look at verses 9 and 10. Sin is emphasized in this passage to show that all are under the condemnation of God, and therefore, we need a Savior. I need a Savior. You need a Savior. It's as if we've all been bitten by some venomous creature. If we don't have Jesus, we are going to die. This text teaches that we all have a need to embrace Christ as our Savior. And that's because our sinful nature and our ability, our sinful nature has ruined and destroyed our ability to serve God as we were designed to. 
as we take a closer look at our text, we're going to ask, what does it say about sin? And why do we need Christ? Let's begin answering those questions with our first heading. We need Christ because of our sinful condition. We need Christ because of our sinful condition. The book of Romans opens with a profound exploration of the sinful condition of humanity. Paul shines a light on how humanity suppresses the truth about God, resulting in all kinds of unrighteousness and wickedness. It results in all kinds of sin. And moving forward, he continues his argument demonstrating that even those who earnestly strive according to the law fall short of God's perfect standard. The law is holy and good, but it cannot save us. Its demands are beyond our capacity to meet, leaving us longing, leaving us longing for a solution. And Paul anticipated objections. So he began addressing them. He speaks to the Jews directly, reminding them that even though they had the advantage of possessing the law, that is, possessing the scriptures, the Bible, and and though they were in covenant with God, they weren't exempt from sin and guilt. They aren't in any better position when it comes to their status apart from Christ. Look at verse 9. Are they any better off than the Gentiles spiritually? Paul says, no. No, not at all. And then Paul adds, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. When it comes to judgment, they're in the same position as the Gentiles. Both are under sin. Paul's message is clear. We are all under sin. But what is What does that mean for us? It means that sin is not just a surface level problem that we can easily shake off and that we can just ignore. It's not just a little mistake here and there. The weight of sin is heavy. It presses down on us. We carry a burden of guilt and of sin. Some of us carry heavy shame. We're under the verdict of the law and each one of us is exposed to the judgment of God. We are all guilty and deserving of punishment. This is a sobering truth. But it's one that we need to hear. It's one that we must hear. To be under sin is to be in a state of bondage where sin has taken control of our lives and our actions. It's a state of being that affects all of humanity after the fall of Adam and Eve. It's a controlling force in human nature 
and behavior. We're born enslaved to sin and unable to break free from its grip in our lives. It's a hopeless situation, and we desperately need a Savior to rescue us from the power of sin. To make his point that all are guilty before God, Paul uses a variety of passages with a particular emphasis on the Psalms. These references are drawn from the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament, so that the Jews that Paul was addressing in his day couldn't refute them. Paul stands on the authority of God's word. He wants to know this isn't just what I'm saying about humanity. This is how God is defining all of us. He stands on the word of God when he declares, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. This means that not a single person, not a single person when judged against the standard of God's righteousness can be seen as righteous. Despite our best efforts, no one is perfectly good, and that is the standard. We all sin. No one is acceptable to God based on their own works and merits. The bar is set too high. We all fall short. Our culture might tell us that we are basically good, but the scriptures show us that our natural condition is far from that. It's anything but that. Imagine your uh, track and field athlete trying uh, to jump over the high bar. The bar represents God's perfect standard of righteousness, which one can attain, one cannot attain by their own effort. No matter how hard you try, you can never clear that bar. In the same way, no matter how good you try to be, you can never reach God's perfect standard of righteousness. We all fall short, just like the athlete that can't clear the high bar. In verse 11, Paul states that no one understands and no one seeks God. Humanity has a fundamental inability to understand spiritual things without God's intervention. It's only through the grace of God's Spirit that our eyes can be open to understand the things of God. Intelligence isn't the same thing as knowledge of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that even the most intelligent, even the most intelligent unbeliever cannot comprehend spiritual truth without God's help. Draw your attention to verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. All people have turned away from God 
And in their sin, they have become morally worthless. Remember, again, the standard is perfection. Our sinful nature has left us in a, in a state of spiritual poverty, separated from God. We've turned away from God, and our sin has corrupted every aspect of our being, including our relationship with God. Our condition is so desperate that we cannot approach God on our own. We need a Savior to bridge the gap between us and God. And no one, no one, no one is exempt from this. The last comment in verse 12 summarizes the character of sinful humanity. Look what it says. No one does good, not even one. Sure, in God's common grace, unbelievers can contribute to society and they create some amazing things. But when it comes to standing before God, no one measures up. No one is so good that they do not need the saving grace of Jesus. Our sin condition has separated us from God. We must also consider the severity of sin and how it affects our lives. Paul continues to paint a bleak picture of humanity's sinfulness and the consequences that come with it. As we delve deeper in the verses, we see that we need Christ because of the severity of sin. That's our second heading. We need Christ because of the severity of sin. Our sinfulness goes way beyond simple mistakes and imperfection. In fact, we see that sin is such a serious and pervasive problem that it affects every aspect of our lives. It's not just that we make mistakes. Our entire being is corrupted by sin, leading to a wide range of harmful behaviors and attitudes. And we see that Paul uses vivid and striking language from the scriptures to describe how severe sin is and why we need Christ to rescue us from its grip. He talks about how our sin is expressed through our speech. You might remember that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, our words reveal the condition of our heart. And Paul begins to use parts of the body, principally the throat and the mouth and the tongue to show the corruption of humanity. Verse 13 says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Paul's quoting Psalm 5.9, which describes humanity as having a deceitful and flattering tongue. The image of an open grave is used to illustrate the destructive power of speech. 
Just as a grave is full of decaying bodies that emits a foul odor, so too sinful speech is full of death and corruption. In Jesus' time, there were people who considered themselves righteous and they refused to accept his teachings about sin and their need for a savior. And he used a powerful analogy to describe their hypocrisy, saying, you are whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, if I open your mouth and look down your throat, I see death and decay. I see a people in need of forgiveness. I see a people in need of a savior. Sin is like poison that corrupts every aspect of our lives. It affects our relationships with others and with God. The Bible talks about it as poison at the end of verse 13. It says the venom of asps is under their lips. An asp is a venomous snake like like a cobra. Sin is deadly like a snake's venom because it contaminates everything that it touches. It's like a snake's venom that spreads throughout the body and causes death. Sin has the power to corrupt and destroy every aspect of a person's life. Just as the venom of a snake can paralyze and kill its victim. Sin paralyzes and kills a person's spirit. The effects of sin can be seen in every aspect of life, from broken relationships to physical and emotional suffering. Sin affects our relationships with others in many ways. It causes us to be selfish, jealous, prideful, harmful to others. It can lead to conflicts, broken relationships, even violence. Sin can also cause us to be dishonest, deceitful, manipulative, Damaging our ability to trust and to be trusted by others. And you can see that as our text continues. Draw your attention to verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The speech of those who have not submitted to God is characterized by curses, insults, and bitterness towards others. Starting from Verse 15, the Bible describes the behavior of unbelievers and it reads like a condensed history of the world. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. It's important to remember that in the Bible, our feet are often used as a metaphor for the way we live our lives. The Bible says the feet of the unbelieving world are swift to shed blood. 
and their paths are marked by destruction and misery. These descriptions illustrate the severity of the sinful condition. Sin always leaves a trail of pain, despair, and heartache. It leaves you in ruin and misery. It leads to restlessness, not peace. Sin promises pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment, but ultimately leads to destruction and misery and death. Sin deceives us by offering immediate gratification, but hides its true nature and consequences, leading us away from God and his purpose for our lives. Paul finishes his list in verse 18 by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The phrase no fear of God before their eyes serves as a summary statement that highlights the root of humanity's sin problem. It implies that those who do not fear God or recognize his authority are prone to disregard his commands and commit various sins. The fear of God refers to a deep reverence and respect for God that acknowledges his power and his holiness and his justice. When people lack this fear, they often become self-centered, pursuing their own desires without regard to others. This absence of fear shows a lack of moral compass and disrespect for God's sovereignty, which leads to a life characterized by sin and rebellion against God. And as a result, all people, apart from Christ, stand under God's judgment and condemnation for their sin. Sin corrupts every aspect of our lives. It poisons our relationships and places us under God's judgment and condemnation. It's clear that we cannot save ourselves from the power of sin. Therefore, we must turn to Christ, who alone can save us from sin's grip. We need Christ because we cannot save ourselves. That's our third heading. We need Christ because we cannot save ourselves. As Paul concludes his argument, he delivers an undeniable verdict of guilt. Regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, every unbeliever stands under God's holy law and is accountable to him. And what's striking is the response or the lack thereof in the face of overwhelming evidence. Silence fills the room and every mouth is shut. There are no more arguments left to be made. Each person is held accountable. The verdict is crystal clear. We are all guilty. 
In Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In these verses, Paul emphasizes that the law has a limited role in our salvation. The law reveals our sin and shows us our need for a Savior, but it cannot save us. The law exposes our sin and guilt, silencing any defense we may have and leaving us fully accountable to God. Therefore, the law can only serve to condemn us, not save us. Imagine a mirror that shows our physical imperfections such as our blemishes and wrinkles and our scars. The mirror doesn't create these imperfections. It simply reveals what's already there. Similarly, the law exposes our sin and reveals our need for a savior It doesn't have the power to save us from sin, but it shows us our sin and points us to the solution, which is Jesus. Our human efforts to be righteous are futile. The Bible says that the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped And the whole world may be held accountable to God. No one can be declared righteous before God by the works of the law. And that's because through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law exposes our inability to keep it perfectly and reveals our need for a savior. This means that our human effort to be righteous and keep the law is futile. Again, it cannot save us. Imagine a person who's trying to jump over a building in a single bound. He trains for months. He exercises. He follows a strict diet. And finally, he's feeling confident on the day. And so he runs and he springs forward and he takes his single bound only to leap into the wall of the building. No matter how hard they try, they can never jump high enough to clear the building. In the same way, no matter how hard we try to be righteous and earn salvation through our efforts, we will always fall short because of our sin nature that is within us. We cannot achieve righteousness through our own strength, just as a person can't jump over a building no matter how hard they try. The law can only bring knowledge of sin, but it can't make you right with God. It shows that all people, regardless of their efforts, are guilty before God and fall short of his perfect standard. We're in need of a savior. We need a savior who can save us from sin and its consequences. 
As we reach the end of verse 20, we may ask ourselves, is there any hope for humanity? You would ask that based on what you've read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. We, we might assume that the answer to that question is no, there is no hope. But when in fact there is good news, if we keep Reading into the next paragraph of our text, we find the solution in verses 21 through 26. While the law tells us that no one is righteous, the gospel tells us of the righteousness that comes from God and is received, not earned, through faith in Jesus. In the next paragraph, we find some of the most beautiful and hopeful words in all of Romans. It says that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. This righteousness isn't earned. The gift of salvation is a gift from God freely given to all, even those who are undeserving It's given to all who believe in Jesus. This gift isn't earned by good works or personal merit, but rather it's received by faith in Christ. Embracing Christ through faith brings forgiveness, justification, and redemption. When we put our faith in Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior, we receive forgiveness for our sins. We're justified and declared righteous before God. And we are redeemed from the power and penalty of sin. Forgiveness means that God cancels the debt of our sins and removes our guilt and shame. Justification means that God declares us to be righteous based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us. And redemption means that God has purchased us out of the slavery of sin and death through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we are now free to live in obedience to him. But some might be asking, what does embracing Christ even mean? To embrace Christ is to accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life and to trust in him for salvation. It requires that we admit our brokenness and confess our need for a Savior and believing in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay the penalty for our sins. It means surrendering our lives to him as Lord, committing to follow and obey his commandments out of love and gratitude. Embracing Christ gives us confidence and boldness before God because we're no longer relying on our own righteousness, which is insufficient to make us right with God. Instead, we're relying on the perfect righteousness of Christ, 
which is given to us through faith. When we embrace Christ and trust in his finished work on the cross, we're declared righteous in God's sight and given access to him with confidence and boldness. Through Christ, believers are reconciled to God and adopted as his children. This means we can approach him in the same way with that same kind of confidence and boldness that a child approaches their loving parent with, knowing that he loves us and knowing that he will always be there for us. In Romans 3, Paul presents a sobering picture of humanity's sin problem. He argues that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty before God and stand under his righteous judgment and condemnation. The law given by God to Israel cannot save us, but it exposes our sin, and our human efforts to be righteous are futile. However, there's hope. Christ is the basis of our salvation through grace and faith. Embracing Christ brings forgiveness, justification, and redemption. Paul emphasizes that all people are sinners and unable to save themselves. No one is righteous, and all have fallen short of God's glory. He also shows that the law is not the solution to our sin problem, but rather it exposes it. Only faith in Christ who has paid the penalty of our sins and redeemed us can save us from God's judgment and condemnation. Through faith in Christ, we are made righteous and we can approach God with confidence and boldness. The implication of Paul's message is clear. We must recognize our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves and put our faith in Christ alone. Only through Christ can we have forgiveness, justification, and the redemption that we need. The message of Romans 3 is both sobering and hopeful. It confronts us with the reality of our sinfulness and our need for a savior. But it also points us to the only solution. Faith in Christ. As we embrace Christ and the salvation he offers, we can be confident in our standing before God and lead lead a life that is pleasing to him. May we all put our faith in Christ and experience of forgiveness, justification, and redemption that only he can provide. Amen. Lord, standing before a mirror is hard. And yet, Lord, when we're honest and we think about ourselves, we think about the things we experience, we can see that you're right. We do have a sin problem. 
Lord, we are so grateful for a Savior. We're grateful, too, that you've come to us with your word, that you've kept it and preserved it, that you've commanded that it be preached to all that will hear. Because this is part of the gospel. We need to know our need for Jesus. Lord, may that ever be before our eyes. Lord, you know that we often look at ourselves for our right standing before you, even though in our minds we know the gospel. Lord, we pray that by the heart we would live in all the freedom that you have given us in Christ. Mm -hmm. We'd ask you to help us to embrace Christ daily, hourly, minute by minute if needed. Lord, keep our eyes on you. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.